Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This uh, is going to be, I think, a blockbuster episode. Jack Cornfield is a true OG, a true legend. In case you don't know anything about him, although I suspect many of you do, briefly, he trained as a Buddhist monk in Thailand and India and Burma in the 70s. He was really one of the first people. He was on the vanguard of, of this, this group of young Americans who went over to Asia and learned how to meditate and then brought it back to the United States. He, along with such towering figures as Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, ended up founding a place called the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And then Jack went off to found another place called Spirit Rock Center, which is in uh, Northern California, which is where I did my first retreat. He has written a series of extremely successful books that have sold more than a million copies, including A Wise Heart, A Path with Heart, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. As you can see, he likes the word heart more than I do. Uh, He also wrote a book with the amazing title, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, which is about what it's like to have all sorts of amazing experiences while meditating, but then you go back to your regular life. And in this interview, you're going to hear him talk about the vicissitudes of his life, the fact that he's this this man who's been practicing meditation, training his mind in an intense way for 50 years, and yet he had uh, he endured a divorce and then a remarriage. And so he, he talks, I think, very candidly and bravely about that. We also talk about where he still gets triggered. In fact, we start with that. And at the end, he's going to take your voicemails. So unlike most interviews where I start off asking people, how did you get into meditation? I wanted to dive right into different sorts of questions with him. So his biography, I just shared a little bit of it with you, and it will start to spill out during the course of the interview. But we pursue a little bit of a, of a different uh, format on this one, and I think, I think you're going to like it. So here we go. Jack Cornfield. Thank you for doing this. It's really a pleasure. It. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad that it worked out. Me too. Yeah. Uh, this is a big opportunity for us. Our audience is going to love this. Oh, I'm glad. Love this. So a question that was submitted to me, suggest, suggested by two people in the 10% orbit, both teachers, uh, one is named Jay Michelson and the other is named Kara Lai. They both independently came up with the same question. That I thought it was a very interesting one, which is, after all these years of practice, is there an area where you struggle the most to apply the teachings, to bring mindfulness in? Well, nothing comes to mind right away. I may be able to pull something up because um, they're all both wonderful and difficult. It's not like there's some particular area. There had been at times in my life in, in past decades um, I can get triggered by different things when there's a lot of conflict. One of the things I've noticed is that uh, there are two different levels to my experience so that recently I was helping a community that was in a lot of conflict um, and uh, people were angry and blaming and resentful. And I noticed that now in my 75th year that my nervous system is not as resilient as it used to be. 
so that after some hours of dealing with everybody's upset, I sat down to be with myself, uh, and my body was very unhappy. It was tense and, and kind of all wired and things like that. At the same time, there was a lot of equanimity. And it reminded me, when I came back from the five years that I first lived in Asia, and most of them as a Buddhist monk, um, I was driving this down. This was in your 20s. This was, exactly, it was in my 20s. Um, and uh, I had left the robes and was a layperson again, and I was driving down the Massachusetts Turnpike, and a big tractor trailer in front of me lost a big piece of tire, um, and it slammed into another car, and all these cars were breaking. And I was very calm. I'd been doing some years of meditation. My mind was really still. And I said, oh, I'm slamming on the brakes. It looks like I might die now. Well, how interesting. You know, it was very, very calm. And at the same time, my hands grabbed the wheel. My body got all activated and wrenched the car out of the way of the crashing cars in front of me over to the dirt on the side. Um, and it said, you're not going to die yet. I'm going to keep you alive. And it was these two things that were happening at the same time. One was a great calm. And the other was my body saying, no, no, you got to take care of yourself. And that I found interesting. And it still carries to these day that uh, there can be periodically in conflict or difficulty or things, um, I can get triggered, activated, um, upset even, although not so often. Um, and then another part of me just sees it as, oh, upset, um, not a problem. And that, uh, that's grown over the years. Um, and it makes me very happy, more than 10% even. <laughs> <laughs> Is that achievable for those of us who are never going to spend five years in robes and dedicate our lives to the, to the extent you have to the practice? I believe it's really the possibility for everyone. And it's not that one has to go on long retreats or go you know, to the Himalayas or go to Kyoto and become a Zen monk or something like that. The beautiful thing is that um, the mind and heart can be trained. And it turns out, even with modern neuroscience, which we might or might not talk about, that they're discovering that even short periods of practice um, start to rewire or decondition our kind of um, habitual responses so that we're not so caught in them. And I believe and have seen people who practice over some time in a dedicated way um, in their daily life or getting, um, at certain times, getting away for a bit of um, inner training, um, that people be, have a great deal more equanimity and balance and more perspective. So absolutely. And if it weren't, um, what good would it be? You know, how many people are going to go to the Himalayas and it would get crowded in the Himalayas anyway? So mm -hmm. it's just, it's not, not, it really is something that's in us. And because it's, um, our the beautiful language it uses is it's, it's your birthright. It is um, your human capacity to awaken both um, compassion and empathy for others. Babies are born with it, and your human capacity to be present without being so reactive or caught in things. You know, and and we love the exemplars of it in the world. When Nelson Mandela walked out of Robben Island Prison after 27 years, um, 
with so much magnanimity and graciousness and compassion, um, he not only changed South Africa, but he kind of changed the imagination of the world, really. It was as if to say, they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And we can learn that, and it doesn't take that long. The meditation isn't just about making yourself quiet or, um, you know, stress reduction, but it's actually the ability to become more spacious with your experience and say, oh, this is happening. You become the, the witnessing, what my teacher called the, the knowing or the one who knows. And that spaciousness has more ease and more love and less reactivity. You say, yeah, this is what human incarnation brings me today, and, and I can manage this. I, mean, I see that play out in my own practice. I, I, Ten years of a little bit of practice – no, definitely no robes and no living overseas for extended period of time. But I noticed that old situations that would trigger me or automatically I would sleepwalk into some sort of foolish behavior. It doesn't happen as much. And yet there are areas where the mindfulness, I just can't summon it. Summon it. For example, claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. I have very bad claustrophobia. It, it results in a kind of panic response. I can't hurl myself into the lotus position in those moments or certain things with my wife. We have a very happy uh, marriage. I consider marrying her the smartest and luckiest thing that's ever happened that I've ever done. And yet there are moments where the mindfulness is is unavailable to me. It might be helpful to know that when the Buddha and Jesus both went back to their families, they both had a hard time. So this just kind of gives <laughs> – Sets the bar in the right place. <laughs> right. The Buddha had a big fight with his sister-in-law or whatever, but she was trying to get women he, he into had, the... He into with the... It, well, with, it, with his stepmother, but he also had difficulty with his father when he went back. Yeah, that, I mean, it was... And his, and his ex-wife, you know, right. and... Um, By the way, he, he named his kid Fetter. Yes, he did. He was, he was, he was not in a good, good mood about child-rearing on that day, I think. That was before Enlightenment. <laughs> exactly, just, exactly. In his defense. But anyway, so, so I mean, our, my dear friend Ram Dass, um, who's a wonderful, you know, wise sage and spiritual teacher, says, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family, basically. <laughs> so the, the more, the closer we get to people, the more vulnerable we get. And also then our history and conditioning can more easily get triggered. And for me, when I was talking about these difficulties recently in this community that was all up in arms and so forth, I noticed when I sat and got quiet that it also triggered a kind of fight, flight, or freeze memory from my early childhood. I had a pretty painful childhood. My father was in some ways brilliant uh, scientist. He was a biophysicist who worked in space medicine and helped design some of the early heart-lung machines and things like that. But he was also, he had mental problems and he was paranoid and violent and he would be really abusive to us and beat my mother and it was a terrible thing as a kid to watch them fight. And um, I noticed that that conditioning, even though I feel really peaceful much of the time, it can get triggered. Um, And now I'm more aware of it, there it is. But it still hurts in some way because it's it's a kind of trauma that's wired in very very deeply in the in my body, 
Um, and now, of course, the response is really different. I just have a kind of compassion for myself or for anybody that gets caught in things because we are all human and we all get caught. And I've become less and less judgmental of anything that's human because um, I see that we, me, that um, we contain it all. As, as Whitman said, I am large, I contain multitudes, and they're not all like, you know, <laughs> the most beautiful incarnations of ourselves. So, But it's, uh, you're, you're now talking about what is sometimes referred to as self-compassion. Yes. Not my favorite term, but nonetheless, we can set that aside. It's a not my favorite term, but it is one of my favorite concepts. Yeah. And it is very difficult. Uh, speaking again for myself here, I find that the development of empathy and compassion for other people, while not easy, is certainly easier than it is for myself. When I see things that I'm ashamed of, I it's hard for me not to spin into spirals of self-flagellation. And it sounds to me, based on the foregoing utterances from the other side of this table, from you, that you're actually, at this stage in your life, able to really see this triggering in yourself and to send yourself some good vibes. Yeah. And um, what you're talking about is something really important. There was this famous discussion that a number of us who were teaching starting the 70s and 80s, had with the Dalai Lama. Sometime in the 80s, it was a teacher meeting with him, and we asked him about uh, what to do with the amount of self-judgment and self-hatred that we saw meditators encountering in the classes and retreats we taught. And he was confused because there's no word in Tibetan for self-hatred. And he and his translator Jimbo went back and forth in Tibetan, like, what could this mean? Um, and finally he understood it, and he looked up with this kind of surprise and, and sympathy, and he said, hmm, but this is a mistake. Why would anyone do this? But then, we, then he said, how many of you have experienced this? And all of us raised our hands. So it becomes a really important thing for people who undertake a meditation practice to not use it to judge themselves. We're already good enough at that, and some of us are so good they wouldn't even hire us to be a judge in a kind of humane society. We'd have to go, you know, to some dictatorship or something. But anyway, um, one of the great blessings that comes from mindfulness is that you can see the judging mind, judging mind of yourself or others, and the moment that you have this revelation, there you are, sitting with a mindful, loving awareness, which is the translation I like for mindfulness now, of loving awareness. You're noticing your experience, um, and then the judging mind arises. You're not doing it right. Those people are messing up, or whatever the judgment is. Um, and the moment you recognize, oh, this is the judging mind, and then in that moment of mindfulness or mindful loving awareness, you can almost bow to it and say, oh, judging mind. In that moment, you've stepped out of the story and out of the belief of it. You recognize it. It's conditioning. Um, almost as if you could bow to it and say, okay, judging mind. You can even say, uh, thank you for your opinion, you know, or um, yes, thank you for trying to protect me. I'm okay for now. Because underneath that judgment is some kind of self-protection in, in some fashion or other. And to be able to meditate and step back from the 
um, grasp of judgment and other states like it is tremendously relieving. Now, it also happens, um, as you point out, that it's harder to do for ourselves than it is for anybody else. And so when I teach loving-kindness meditation, for example, which is a great complement to mindfulness, um, it used to be in the traditional form that we were taught in Asian temples and so forth, that you'd start with yourself. But people in the West often find it really difficult, as you said. And so what I like to do now is have people picture first one and then maybe a second person who they care about, where it's not so conflicted, where there's love. I mean, for you, it might be your, it sounds like you have this wonderful relationship with your wife, and wish them well, may they be safe and protected, feel the care you have for them, and also become aware of their measure of struggle or suffering, like every human being. And when you picture your wife, even as we talk, and you see that she too has her struggles, there comes so naturally a compassion because you love her. It just arises. It's part of our heart, the way we're wired. And after wishing well and developing love and compassion for one or two people, then what I will do is say, all right, now imagine those two people turning their gaze back to you. Imagine your wife turning her gaze back to you, Dan, and wishing for you what you wished for her. She looks at you, and I can do it with my daughter, for example, or my beloved Trudy, my wife, and they want the same thing. They say, oh, Dan, I wish you are, are well and safe and protected, and I feel a tender compassion for your struggles, like every human being. And you start to realize you can take it in from these people because they care about you. And then the next step, I'll say, is, all right, now, if you like, put your hand on your heart, and take those words that you heard from these loved ones and bring them in and say, all right, if they wish it for me, I guess it's okay to wish it for myself. May I be safe. Um, may I hold myself with compassion, all my struggles. May I be protected. And it's as if the people that we care about can teach us what we can't find in ourselves. I, uh, I had a, the great good fortune to do a one-on-one -on -one loving kindness meditation retreat with your student spring washam mm -hmm. uh, who's been on this podcast several times and is an incredible human being and in teaching uh, the practice to me she did something very similar which was we spent the first this was a 10 nine day retreat the, we spent the first couple of days on easy people mm -hmm. so i spent the first one or two days only sending the phrases May you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease, et cetera, et cetera, to my f then three-year-old son and his cat, Toby. And uh, that was really easy. And then as soon as she would say, as soon as you, you got the juices flowing, slip in yourself. Yeah. And that I found to be quite effective. Beautiful. Also much the same way. It's like the, the principle, we kind of think that meditation has to be some sort of grim duty. <laughs> and it's really the opposite. The principle is to do that which opens the doorway of the heart most easily, whether it's loving-kindness meditation, take your dog, your child, your beloved in whatever way, and let the heart open, and then little by little let it open to things that are a bit more difficult. And the same in mindfulness. You don't want to sit and say, all right, 
now I'm going to sit and not move and make real pain for myself and learn to do this, which is a kind of nice warrior training in a Zen monastery or something. And if you're a young man, as I was, you know, we would say things in the forest monastery, live, like, is there anything dangerous to do around here? You kind of <laughs> want to prove yourself. But what's most helpful, actually, is to allow it to be a gateway to well-being. So when Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh says, as you breathe in and out, use the words calm or ease with each breath. And I try to point people as they begin to meditate to look for even moments of calm or well-being that start to punctuate the stream of thoughts. Um, and as you feel even a little bit of it, Relax into it and invite it to be there a little longer. Let it spread. The point isn't to overcome things, but to come back to a deeper sense of rest in yourself, and you can learn to do that so that it becomes um, becomes something that you want to do or that you find nourishing. And even when you don't, because a lot of people also use meditation when they get triggered and upset and so forth, um, you have the bodily memory, oh, there's a place that I've found already where my body finds greater ease, where attention is much more spacious. Let me see if I can bring that into even this difficult time. Can I go back to something you said earlier <clears throat> about you You were talking about mindfulness and you said that the translation or the phraseology you now prefer is loving awareness. Yes. Let me just say a few words and then you can riff off of that. I've noticed, this is something I learned on the aforementioned loving kindness retreat with spring, which is that I had by that point been practicing, I don't know, nine years or whatever, not some massive amount of time, but not nothing. And I noticed that in my, well, I didn't notice it until this retreat, that my mindfulness, which I would have defined as sort of non-judgmental awareness, seeing clearly what's happening in your head without getting carried away by it, something in that range. Mm -hmm. My mindfulness had a, a heretofore, to me, imperceptible, aversive flick to it. So I would notice judging, and I would note, oh, yeah, I'm judging myself. But there was in there something that I hadn't seen yet, which was I was kind of pushing it away. Just a, There was just around the edges. And... What I notice about adding and doing intensively this complementary form of meditation, loving kindness, another term I don't love, but whatever, the, it created such a warm, sunny disposition in my mind so that when all of my ugliness, and it's all there for all of us, all of my ugliness arose, I was actually, you know, uh, welcoming it to the party as opposed to gritting my teeth. So is am I in the range of what you're talking about when you say loving awareness? Exactly that. Because it's possible for mindfulness to be um, subtly a form of judgment. All right, I see it. But underneath, it's like, well, I'm seeing the judging mind, and I kind of wish it would go away. Or the other, I'm so proud of myself. Wow, I've seen it. <laughs> All kinds of reactions. Um and with loving awareness, you say, oh, he's proud of himself. Isn't that charming? Or, you know, he's still judging. Thank you for your opinion. It's okay. We know who recorded those judgments in there anyway. We won't talk about them, but mm. thank you for trying to protect me. 
And there's a sense of humor and a graciousness and a kindness, that, which is exactly what you found um, in yourself in that retreat with spring. Um, and this is, again, part of allowing meditation um, to have a ground of um, care, of well-being, and, and um, even a, of a kind of happiness that's not the happiness of pleasure, but it's, um, it's in somehow deeper than that. It's the ground that realizes, oh, I'm okay. I can be with all the stuff that a mind creates, all the, as you said, the ugly things and the frightened things, because um, most of the things that are really ugly actually come out of fear, mm-hmm. of self-protection and so forth. Um, I can be with all that and say, oh, this is, this is just humanity. Um, you know, uh, I think about Oscar Wilde's phrase, something about um, the tainted glory of humanity, that we have all these parts of ourselves. And not to be so, so judgmental, or, or um, I think it's Auden who said to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart, mm-hmm. uh, some poetic line like that. We're in this together as human beings. And with that, there comes a kind of graciousness. Um, and, uh, you know, a kind of care for our common humanity and, and um, uh, much, much less judgment of ourself and others. And this is really important to say. When we talk about non-judgment, it doesn't mean that there still isn't a, a discernment so that actions that are causing harm to others, to us or others, we see that clearly and can stand up and do whatever is necessary to stop that so that others are not causing harm um, to us or to other people. So it's not a lack of clarity or discernment. Um, there's a kind of, there's actually a, that's part of compassion, a response, a natural response to protect ourselves and others when we're quiet. And it's in us, even the most hardened criminal is going to pick up a child that fell into the street when the traffic is coming. It's just wired in us. And the earliest studies, the studies at Yale of, you know, pre-verbal kids, infants, um, when not their own cries, if they hear their own cries recorded, they're blithe to it. They don't care about it. But if they hear the cry of another child or they see an adult or someone in trouble, the, the, the tracking of their eyes and their senses shows they want to do something about it. We're born with this. And in a certain way, meditation makes the space. We become the space of loving awareness that can say, yes, here, here's our human predicament, our human life, um, and allows for that, um, I call it the great heart of compassion that's born in, in you, in us, um, that original goodness to to come forth. It's like you're bringing your better angels to the gym. Absolutely. You know, or to the game or to life itself. Exactly. But the gym, by the gym, I mean is that these are, they're in us, better angels, yeah. and so is the ugliness, and you right. can train one and let the other atrophy if you go down this path. Yeah. And, and what you say, this is, I mean, because we live in a very paradoxical um, uh, life, um, that uh, just like light has is both a wave and a particle, um, in some way you could say, all right, we have, you know, 
better angels and ugliness and so forth in that dualistic way. But then there's another part of us that can step back and be the awareness itself that says, oh, there's all this going on, but that's not really, that's not who I am. Who I am is this witnessing, this awareness. And even, you know, as we talk, um, you can sit there and be in your identity as Dan, you know, doing an interview, which you've done many times and have this skill and comfort with. You can be identified with your age or body or personality and so forth. Or you can be the awareness that says, ah, here it is, all this is playing out as if on a, you know, on the screen. Um, And that awareness is outside of time. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, um, who was a great forest meditation master and really celebrated in Thailand, when I met him, he was not well-known at all, and in some ways he was um, criticized a lot because he was a very strict teacher. Um, But after he died, um, because his wisdom and humor was so beautiful and it started to get disseminated by little cassette tapes in the 1960s. A million people came to his funeral, including the king and queen, because he had such love and wisdom that came through him. Um, uh, Anyway, he had practiced for 10 years as a monk in a really ardent way back in the day when you read those stories of people who lived in caves and out in the jungles and there were tigers and things like that. And he overcame a lot of obstacles. And then he started to have all kinds of beautiful experiences of great peace and calm, dissolving his body into light, having a sense of samadhi, and which is a word for just unified consciousness and openness or tremendous love and things that also can come in meditation. Um, and this is a little parenthesis in the middle of this story. Um, Western psychology tends to focus on pathology. And we have this great big manual, the DSM diagnostic manual, where you look up the number, is this person a depressive or a bipolar or, you know, have an anxiety disorder? And we, that way you get the insurance to pay. And Buddhist psychology tends to all those things. It understands those. But it has a whole other volume about the positive mm-hmm. capacities of 25 different states of joy and 15 of happiness and well-being and states of tremendous peace and equanimity and how you develop them. So he developed a lot of these things and had all these great insights. And he went to see the greatest meditation master of the day, another Ajahn or teacher named Ajahn Man, bowed to him and he said, can I tell you about my meditation? And he said, I went through this and I had these insights and these visions and I also overcome the difficulties and what should I do next? And the master looked back and said, Cha, you've missed the point. Those are just experiences. He said, they're like movies. You have a romantic comedy and a war movie and a documentary, you know, and there are other different kinds of movies you can see. He said, there's really only one question you have to inquire into, and that is, Who's watching the movies? To whom do these happen? So instead of trying to get, okay, I've got a great movie and I want to keep it, but, you know, anything you try to keep, it's like holding your breath. You can't keep any mind state. He said, instead of trying to keep something, turn your attention back to the knowing. Become the one who knows, was his phrase, Sikibuto. Um, 
become the witnessing to experience. And that's the place that you will find freedom. And this is really what I'm talking about as loving awareness, that there is a place that is available to us, um, no matter the outer circumstances, where we can become the, where we shift back to become the conscious witness, the loving awareness of experience, and not be triggered or caught. And in it, there's understanding and discernment and compassion. And even when we're getting caught, we can say, oh, there he is caught again, you know. Um, but there's some little smile with it, like, okay, I don't have to go down that road fully. And this capacity that we have to shift identity from being in the middle of everything to being a space of love and awareness um, is really the gateway to our, our well-being and freedom. And that's possible for anybody. Let me pick up on that. Yeah, please. Because you say that is possible for anybody, and you've invoked this phrase of the one who knows mm. simply and granularly, how do we inhabit that space? Yeah, and that's that's the big question. So I was invited a few years ago to the first White House Buddhist Leadership Conference. There was a White House Buddhist Leadership that Conference? That was. Under that which happened. president? Um, let us say the previous president. Okay. It's not going to be happening in this next next week, I don't think. Who knows? But one never knows. It's true. The, mis- the, the universe is more mysterious than we could imagine. Your old friend, may it happen. Your old friend Joseph Goldstein likes to say anything can happen anything at any time. That's right. So may it happen. But anyway, um, I, I'm not packing my bags to go. <laughs> I'll just say that much. But in any case, I was able to be part of the kind of summary address of what we – talked about, and I quoted, I brought a teaching from the time, ancient time of the Buddha, these, as these things were written down, you know, going back thousands of years, um, because not only was the Buddha, um, he was a human being, he wasn't some kind of a god or something, but he was an awakened being, which is to say the word Buddha means someone who's awake, who's living in a conscious and free free-hearted, compassionate way. Um, he was also a counselor to ministers and kings as well as to everybody else that he met. So I said, so if the Buddha were around these days, he probably would be invited to the White House, you know, and he'd have. And then I said, so here was his advice to a particular um, king or ruler. He said, for a, for a society to prosper and not decline, the first principle is that people have to come together and meet and listen to one another with respect, to see the dignity in each person. And if they meet and bring a quality of respect to their differences, they will prosper and not decline. If the society treats the vulnerable among them, the women, the children, those who are in need uh, with care and protection, they will prosper and not decline. If the society tends the natural environment well, they'll prosper and not decline. Um, if they follow the, the healthiest and wisest traditions of their ancestors and of the wise teachers before, they will prosper and not decline. So I read this and I said, now the truth is that this is not unique to Buddhist teachings. You can find it in Socrates and Plato, and you can find it in China and Lao Tzu. And you can find it in the indigenous elders of the Iroquois nations or in Africa or um, other places. 
And I said, the thing that makes Buddhist teachings particularly important in our time, and it's not to make you become a Buddhist, spare your friends and family. You don't want to be a Buddhist, you want to become a Buddha. Um, But the thing that makes them particularly relevant is that there are trainings to do so. This is not just a beautiful philosophy or a vision of wise society. Here's how you train compassion. Here's how you train loving kindness. Here's how you train mindfulness. And by doing so, even in small chunks, in 10 or 15 minutes, I have a program with uh, my dear colleague Tara Brock called Mindfulness Daily, online um, that you can get for free on my website, Um, 40 days of 15 minutes a day. And people report, change my life, Mm. 15 minutes a day with all the instructions of how to do it. And that leads all the way up to this beautiful teacher training that we do for people. Um, But I said, so our our neuroscience research in the last couple of decades, there have been more than 5,000 studies and papers published on the benefits of training in mindfulness and its capacity and training in compassion um, shows that in education, in healthcare, and in um, all these different dimensions in business and so forth, that if people actually spend some time training and do these systematic trainings, that the mind and the brain itself starts to change, um, is amenable to and is actually um, responsive to how we pay attention and how we train ourselves. And I found this, um, first of all, I find it to be completely heartening because it means it's not just, we're just not peddling some new idea or some belief system. That's fine. These are all lovely ideas. But how do you do them, which was your question? That there are ways and that they're actually pretty straightforward and they're not belief systems. They're not a new religion. I mean, we've had at our retreats Catholic monks and uh, Catholic nuns and priests and rabbis and imams and people of all different faiths and, uh, you know, atheists and agnostics and everything in between say, totally fine, whoever you are, these trainings offer you a simple way when you undertake them to learn to quiet the mind, to tend the heart, to find an inner well-being and balance, to open yourself to compassion in the world. These are the birthright of humanity. Um, They're known in other ways in the world. It's not just unique to Buddhism, but there's beautiful systematic ways to do it. And now neuroscience says, yeah, these actually work. But is there something, if I'm listening to this podcast right now and I want to be able to access this space that you've described of the one who knows, Mm -hmm. Is there a way to do that, or I, do I do I need to take your course, or how, what, is there something so there, I can do there, now to access There are two this? things. One is um, it's helpful to take a course. My course happens to be quite a good one, but there are many of the little judgment in there. But there's um, – Well, let me just bolster – I mean, yeah. you and Tara Brock, <laughs> I mean, it's hard, the gold standard, so – and at the same time, there are lots of other very good trainings in meditation online that one can find. Um, and it's really helpful to have instruction because you sit first and you close your eyes and you say, all right, I'm just going to become the witness to it all. And 10 seconds later, uh, I'm really upset that she or he said that and I'm going to go and I'm going to call them or write a letter and, you know, and then I have to oh, – and I'm worried about this and I finish, and, you know – and it's called the monkey mind, and you see it, and it's so easy to get lost in it. And then you find yourself faced with 
restlessness and doubt and confusion and fear, and you, can, you don't know what to do with it. So having some simple instructions that say, here's what you do with the monkey mind, here's what you do with the judging mind, here's what you do when fear arises or pain in the body, you can approach that pain and hold it. There are like three steps. First is you turn toward it. Secondly, you acknowledge it and see what is that pain. It's fire, throbbing, and so forth, um, and you see your reactivity. Um, then third, you step back from it and hold the pain the way you'd hold a crying child. With a, You know, there's this infant, um, and their diapers change. They've been fed, so there's nothing you can do that way, and they're still crying. What do you do? You pick them up, you hold them, and just the fact of holding them with a kind attention, that child, Ah, little by little, their crying slows down, their breathing quiets, and they become more peaceful in your hands or your arms. And it turns out you can do that with your own body's pain. It doesn't make the pain always go away. Sometimes the body will hurt, but you can hold it in that way. And all of a sudden you realize, all right, there's a level of freedom here I didn't know. I kept running away from it, being afraid of it, and now I actually can be with it, and it doesn't scare me so much. Then... The next step is to turn your attention from the pain and that space of holding with compassion and say, well, what's holding this? Who is holding this? Mm-hmm. Um, and in not some kind of weird way, because you don't find somebody in there, okay, there's like a little person in there, the Wizard of Oz with the levers or something. But instead, you, you start to sense that there's a space of awareness um, that's not caught in it that is available to you. And so if I say to you, even as we're sitting here, Dan, try to stop being aware, all right? So this is our little practice for, you know, um, 10 seconds or something. Do whatever you can do, you know, close your eyes, grit your teeth, um, imagine anything, do whatever you can. Stop being aware, okay? On your mark, get set, try it. And you can't do it. No. No. The only best I can do is try to get lost in some stream of thought. Right. You could, you could go away. But then you're kind of aware of that thought. You're sort of in that stream. But to stop awareness, you can't do it because it's here. So what the, the movement of um, becoming the one who knows in, this, in a kind of simple way, a little bit like fish in water, which is why it's hard to explain in something in some way, is to say, oh, there is awareness, and then there's all this stuff going on, and the shift from being in the, even there as we were in that example, holding the pain with kindness and realize, oh, yeah, this is now holding the pain with kindness. And there can be a little commentary, that's thought, but beside the commentary, there's just spaciousness and stillness. We long for silence. You know, we long for it, and yet we don't quite know how to find it. Yes, it's beautiful to go out on a starry night and look at the sky and feel a sense of mystery, but we live in mystery. And just as we're seated here speaking, or those who are listening, um, you can step back and become the, uh, the loving awareness and say, ah, oh, wow, this day, isn't this mysterious, this moment? And that is available at any time. Yeah, just uh, I've said this before on the show that that you know there are lots of great mysteries. You know how 
how did the universe come into being? Why are we here? But the, the a great mystery that is available that you can bump up against in your own mind 24 hours a day if you want is the mystery of consciousness. How do we go from, yes. as I've heard you once say, how do we go from on this planet from rocks to being able to sing opera? How did what? How how do we become aware? As, uh, how did a bunch of particles become aware? Yeah, and all you have to do is to look, you know, is to notice whatever you're hearing right now, and then to look for what's hearing it. Yes, and then yes. You, you can add on the other question of who's asking that question. Yeah, and it and you're not going to find anything, but as is often said, probably by you, in the not finding. There is something very important. There's something beautiful, which is this space of openness that sees that everything actually arises in mind, in consciousness, that mind is the primary thing, you know, and that, uh, well, there are several really important things that follow from that. One is the teaching that um, no one can harm you more than your own mind untrained, and no one can help you more than your own mind wise or opened or trained, not even the most loving family or friend, that in some way it says, who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy if it's not trained. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. That the ability, this remarkable ability we have as human beings to turn our attention from the outer experience to our own heart and mind, to see both the content of mind and then to recognize that there's the possibility of awareness is, uh, is magic. More 10% Happier after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com happier for free shipping 
on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. As I mentioned before, I've been I've collected some questions from you from for you from all sorts of people. And sure. another person sure. who suggested some questions was our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Mark Epstein. Our listeners will know him because he's been on the show several times. Great psychiatrist here in New York City who's written these beautiful books about the overlap between psychology and Buddhism. And so I asked him, so what, what should I ask Jack? And he said very, this is a very short quote. Ask him about Silicon Valley and psychedelics and love. So I want to start at love. We've been talking about loving awareness. Yeah. But love, I guess, boy, is a freighted term. Uh, and I just wonder if I could get you to riff on the term. Yeah, it's freighted because it has so many meanings in our culture. You know, I love Baskin-Robbins ice cream, <laughs> you know. Too. Or I love, you know, certain people, or I love a sunset. So there's there's kind of there's sense desire. Um, I love it when people who've been in conflict can find a way to resolve it. There's those kind of love, you know. I love new understandings, um, and then there's just plain love, you know, feeling somehow connected with the whole world. It is mysterious. Love is like gravity. We don't quite know what it is. Um, but I feel in myself that love is that resonance or connection um, when the sense of separateness drops away. Um, my dear friend Alice Walker wrote, she said, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it come to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed and I laugh and I cry and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. And we all have had that experience. You know, it might have been making love, if you're fortunate enough to have that, which is a wonderful thing, or it might be walking in the high mountains, or it might be or lying out, you know, in the grass and looking at the night sky when it's dark, that great mystery. Or maybe it's when you're there, at the birth of a child, um, part another vision of the mystery, how human beings come into this world of another person's body. You know, or if you're there holding the hand of someone when they're dying, and that person, the spirit leaves that body. There's that body there. And in a moment, it's just a dead body. And you can feel the difference when there's consciousness and when there's not. Um, and the gates between the worlds open, or maybe it's through taking some sacred medicine like psychedelics, but almost everyone has had this sense that we're not just limited to this little physical body or our, our, our family identity or our conditioning, that who we are is connected with the vastness. And that's a part of love. I, I'm tempted to just interrogate that a little bit by saying... please. Sounds to me like you're describing awe and mm -hmm. interconnection and interdependence. Yes. That's different from the way m many in our culture would perceive love. Yeah. Well, I think that it's sort of like, 
you're worried about climate change and the rainforests and things like that. When you feel that, as, as has been written, um, they're part of your lungs, that every breath you take past, you know, at some point through the Amazon rainforest, it also dusted the tops of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa and the Fukushima nuclear reactor that we are. This is our air and our lungs. There's a kind of tenderness and love that comes because it's us. And um, th- so this is one dimension of love, that we actually feel a care because naturally it is, it is who we are. Um, I don't tend to use the word, even though I talk about loving awareness, um, these days I'm using the word compassion a lot more because of the complexity of the word love, which is where you started this question, that in fact, you know, I want you, I need you, rock and roll songs, you know, baby, oh baby. Um, uh, He's we, playing an air guitar. Well, yeah, we, we have, I mean, our culture has all these, or, you know, or I love my new, you know, air sneakers or whatever. Um, we have all these different meanings for love and we get confused about it and we could talk about that and you know intimate relationships and so forth the word compassion has a lot less freight um it it's not exactly the same as love because it's more attending or a caring when we meet the suffering of the world it's the heart opening to try to respond in some way to that um but what it does speak to is again our very deep sense of connection and caring and maybe instead of talking about love, I talk about universal connection or universal care. And to live in that way um, makes us happy and makes the people around us happy. If you know caring people, you want to be around them, you know. And when you've had a day when you've been able to express some care, you could call it love and so forth, um, there's a satisfaction in that day. Um, that's beautiful and so important because in the hospice work I've done and in many things that have been written about it, the end of life, um, you know, some of the biggest regrets or the biggest questions are, um, did I love well? Did I let myself love? Did I let myself express that love to people, things that I cared about? Did I let it in as well as out? Um, this is what makes us um, human and makes us happy. So there's a little riff on love. What about, uh, do you have more to say about romantic love? I love romantic love. <laughs> and, you know, the problem with romantic love is, there are several problems. One is that it doesn't last generally so long. Its half-life is not as long as you would like. And I've been together now with Trudy for 10 years and sounds like you have a wonderful beloved yourself and most of the time it's there and I'm like just still happy we um I asked her to marry me we'd been together for some years um and I asked her at one point uh what she wanted for her birthday or something and she looked me said oh um, I'd like a husband. She, I want to get married. Um, and and I paused, and I wasn't sure because I'd gotten divorced, and it was it was 
sad and painful. I didn't want to get divorced, but there it happened. Um, I was a little bit reluctant, even though I was very much in love with her. Um, and I said, almost that something, <laughs> I forget what I said, but something like, oh, 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 okay, and now I understand what you want. But it wasn't like, okay, let's do it. I was a little reluctant. Um, and she knew that. She was, she was sort of teasing me, too. And then I sat with it, and I realized I love this woman. Of course, why not? So um, some months later, after I'd sort of worked through my own fears about it, really, uh, because the ending for, of my marriage had been so painful, um, I invited her to, to take a ride on the Ferris wheel in Santa Monica. We, her, her home where we live part of the time is in, in Venice next to Santa Monica, um, and she likes that. She's a big kid in a lot of ways, and I do too. So I said, let's go ride the Ferris wheel. And she said, sure. It was a lovely afternoon. And I whispered to the guy at the bottom of the Ferris wheel. I said, uh, stop at the top. I'm going to propose to this woman. <laughs> and so he stopped us at the top, and I got on my knees, and I pulled out this little box of you know ring and and asked her to marry me, and she was completely surprised, and it was wonderful. And now every year we go and ride the Ferris wheel and kind of redo it. So there's something beautiful about romantic love because we're able to see the beauty of someone um, uh, in a way that makes us happy and them happy. Now, the, the downsides beside the fact that it can change is that it often is also uh, a kind of idealization, um, that if this person loves me, I'll be happy. So there's a sort of um, businessman's exchange in that way. And, oh, we see all the beauty of this person. When you're in romantic love, you just see how great that person is. And then, of course, later on, as in all the great poets writing about, oh, my God, it turns out that they have feet of clay and they fart or whatever it is. <laughs> and they're human and they're not just that beautiful ideal that you imagine. And in that way, romantic love, I think, is a gateway to a deeper kind of love. I mean, we can seek romantic love and try and find, well, when that ideal fails, then we end that relationship. We look for another, 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 as if that's going to last. Um, and in the end, it's very unsatisfying. But when that romantic love becomes a gateway to see that secret beauty of that person that's there behind these eyes that was born in them as a child, that the a kind of innocence and spark and and um consciousness that's far deeper than, you know, their conditioning and their personality, um, then love really blossoms in a different way. And uh my experience of meditation is that it allows me to be present for myself in a more fundamentally honest and open way, and it allows me to be present for others, and that is part of the gateway to love. Um, I enjoy romantic love. I'm still happy to have some of it, you know, just like I enjoy beautiful music and I enjoy great art. You know, I also enjoy, a you know, a mystery or a thriller or other kinds of things, um, even, you know, that aren't romantic. Um, but it's it's a gateway for us. Yeah, I've heard you speak in other places quite, in my opinion, bravely and helpfully about your divorce. 
I, I can I can hear a question through because I'm such an expert meditator. I have the divine ear, and I can hear the the questions of my audience, even though they haven't even listened to this yet. That's my tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could hear a question possibly of okay, this guy's such a, a meditative adept. How did he get into a relationship that went pear shaped? I think that's an unfair question, but I can no, hear it's a fair, it I think coming it's a fair up. Question. So wh- because we're always looking for exemplars, like okay, I would peek at my teachers and say, how enlightened are they really? You know, or and then I've watched because I'm in the industry and I hang out with lots of swamis and lamas and mamas and gurus and things like that. I see all their beauty. And I also get to see, you know, the shadow side of it. And sometimes, of course, it's just a, a bad shadow side because it's people who are in the role who are actually quite unconscious and exploit people. And that happens whether it's teachers or doctors or gurus or anybody who has a role of power. It's a misuse of power. Um, but I've also been around and watched great teachers like Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh get angry, you know, and upset. Um, or the Dalai Lama get upset. And I go, whoa, this is interesting. Um, and Dalai Lama is fantastic. He is such a – one of the finest human beings I've ever met. Such a gracious heart and a beautiful laugh. And in fact, um, you know, I think people go to see the Dalai Lama, not so much for all those Tibetan Buddhist teachings, which are mysterious and some of them are – you know, life-changing, and a lot of them we can't even figure out, really. I don't think they go for that, or even because he's this sort of celebrated Nobel laureate. I think people go to hear him laugh, that somebody who could carry the tragedy of Tibet and the burning of the monasteries and um, his life in exile and still have such a beautiful laugh as if to say, you know, if if he can live with so much love and joy, which he has, and laughter, I guess it's possible for me. It's possible for any of us. So um, living a human life is not without its difficulties. And everybody, there's the, they all have, Thich Nhat Hanh was in exile and had terrible difficulties, the Dalai Lama. And in my marriage, I got married quite young and had a, you know, I have a beautiful daughter and some years of quite a lot of joy and happiness. Um, But as my daughter left for college and graduate school, law school and things, as we do in marriage, empty nest, you sort of look at, well, all right, what are we going to do now? And my ex-wife is one of the most introverted people I've ever met in my whole life. Very private, very quiet. I, on the other hand, have, you know, a thousand best friends, travel around, teach in large numbers, have, you know, I'm, I've kind of the crazy extroverted life. It was not really a very happy match in that regard. And it takes two to be married. She's like, okay, I had enough of this, I think. And, I mean, I'm not to put words in her mouth quite, but um, she didn't want that. And uh, I'm a pretty loyal person. I would have stayed married, but um, it didn't happen. And it was it was really painful. And then somebody says, well, um, how does a mindfulness meditation teacher get divorced? They get divorced like anybody. They go through the pain of it. 
They have regrets, as I had. I had my regrets. You try to do it in as thoughtful a way as you can, but it's not easy. Um, um, and you do it as a human being uh, without um, trying to hold it all um, without so much judgment and without, uh, with some compassion for everybody because it wasn't easy. It's not, not just hard for me, hard for my ex, hard for you know, my daughter. And it was interesting. I was talking to my daughter who's very wise and I said, she was in her 20s, and I said, so your parents are getting divorced, and even though you're grown up, it's still your mommy and daddy. Do you have any, anything that would help you? And, this, and she looked at me and she said, Dad, be happy. And if you're, if you're happy, then I'm okay. Hmm. And she wanted that for her mother too. It was a beautiful thing and very, very wise. So... Um, that's an incredible thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's an example of, I sometimes think about this thing you've talked, you invoked the name of the Dalai Lama. Um, the first time I interviewed him, he said something to me that really had a big impact, which I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person he said this to, but he was talking about uh, the fact that all human beings are selfish. We're wired for that. But there's a wise kind of selfishness, which is to develop generosity, empathy, and compassion. And that's what your daughter, it seems to me, was demonstrating there, which is the best thing for her is for you to be happy. Yes. Yeah. The other things on Mark Epstein's list were Silicon Valley and psychedelics. Um, I don't think he means them in connection. Um, do you care to uh, talk about either or both of those? I will talk about uh, both of them. I've written about psychedelics um, in a number of places, a, a whole chapter of it in a book called Bring Home the Dharma. And one of the things that's true is that my generation of Buddhist and Hindu teachers, spiritual teachers, who had a big part in bringing Eastern practice, not just Eastern philosophy, Eastern practice alive in the U.S., were almost all deeply affected by taking LSD and other psychedelics starting in the 1960s when they became culturally more available. Um, and what we found was that it opened certain doorways to see, oh, the mind really creates everything. And how do we work with this mind and so forth? Um, now I want to learn more, and it took Sharon or Joseph to India or to Thailand, places that... Uh, or Ramdas to India and various teachers. Um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's it's woven in with the movement of these practices from the East uh, that that have really transformed our lives. It was a gateway. It's not it's not a, a panacea, and it's not something that will just solve things. But now it was it went underground because the culture became or the you know the FDA and the medical establishment became scared of it in some way, and it was mixed with the revolutionary ideas of the 1960s, I think too. But now with the publishing of Michael Pollan's book on the the scientific research and psilocybin and other such things, that book just for the curious is called How to Change Your Mind. 
um, New York Times number one New York Times bestseller. Um, he documents the, the new research that's being done that in certain cases psilocybin and other such things have really powerful beneficial effects so that people with PTSD, vets coming back, sometimes one or two sessions changes their life and releases them from that or um, uh, stopping smoking, which is a really hard thing. Almost any intervention, the best interventions were like 15, 20 percent and then people start smoking again. Nicotine's so addictive. Um, after psilocybin sessions, I think it was either at NYU Medical School or Johns Hopkins, after a year, 80% of people were not smoking. So these have great value, and they're being spread in other ways. In Silicon Valley, where I work part of the time because I live in the Bay Area, um, and there's this sort of hip Silicon Valley culture that the exploration of these things has also become relatively common. I'm all for it when it's done in a thoughtful and sensible way. Um, of course, we're Americans, so we know how to misuse anything. We can misuse meditation, and it can be misused. We can misuse psychedelics. We can be, but in a discerning and wise way, um, they're one of the um, – that kind of medicine is one of the gateways that can help us to some kinds of really important understanding. Um, so I'll say that much, and I've written a bunch about it. Um, as for Silicon Valley, living where I do, we've had a number of tech leaders come to retreats or be interested in meditation, and I've gone to different companies and so forth. And I've become part of a, a group called Mobius, among other things that I'm doing in Silicon Valley, um, and connected with the Center for Humane Technology of Tristan Harris, another really wonderful leader, um, trying to find ways to recreate um, a vision of technology that is, brings out the best in humanity because it's turned out like everything to have a, a very beneficial side and a really destructive side, whether it's the destruction in, you know, it's being used in uh, ways to foment racism or tr tribalism or violence around the world in different ways or to squash things or false news or or teenage girls who are looking at their image on the phone and how many likes and and feeling terrible about themselves. It's all the kinds of misuses. Um, and so we're part of a group of people in Silicon Valley that are really stepping back and saying, how do we make principles for artificial intelligence, for the engineers, for the developers, so that this gets steered in a way that's not just about profit, that doesn't just try to grab your attention by making the scariest or the most enticing thing one after another until you can't stop watching YouTube as an addict or something. How can we do it in a way that enhances our well-being? Uh, and that's a question for our time. Um, what's true is that, and the reason that I'm a part of it, we have neuroscientists and contemplatives and then than tech leaders is that no amount of outer development, nanotechnology, computer technology, AI, biotechnology, space technology, is going to stop continuing warfare and racism and environmental destruction. Those things are based on the human heart, war, conflict, environmental destruction. 
And so the outer technologies that are so remarkable, where I have the great library of Alexandria in my smartphone in my pocket, now have to be met with inner transformation, that humanity is being called upon um, to learn these capacities for compassion, interconnection, wisdom, loving kindness. Um, As one of the chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we're a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Mm. Um, And so our outer development now has to be matched with inner development or those outer things become forces of destruction. But do you think the titans of this particular industry, tech, are going to listen to you or is the profit motive just too strong and they're beholden after all to their shareholders? When someone asks a difficult question like that, my answer is yes to both sides. (laughs) The profit motive is really strong and it's both in the industry and that kind of greed and Wall Street and how our, our whole economy is based on profit and greed in some way. And there's also some leaders who have great hearts and wisdom who are really looking, how do we do this and balance it? Um, and this is our human predicament. All those who are listening, you have all this in you. It's not just those titans. It's, you're the titan in your household or whatever. And the beautiful thing is that when you quiet yourself even a little bit and step out and stop multitasking and running around and, you know, whatever, and let yourself get um, in touch with what really matters, um, you can begin to both tend, quiet your mind, tend your heart, open to the deepest values you have and, and discern and sense how can I live those. And I like to say there's a beautiful quote from Albert Einstein that I don't think is an artifact of the Internet because I read it in Scientific American where he said, if you can drive safely while kissing a girl, you're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. And there's some way in our modern life that we get so pulled by distraction, whether it's technology or other things, that we lose touch with ourselves, with our own hearts with what really matters. And part of meditation is to quiet ourselves. But that's the beginning. In that coming to quiet, we connect with ourselves and a a deeper level of wisdom and care and even tenderness for life starts to come and also a deeper level of courage that we we can stand up with a kind of dignity for ourselves and others that we have a kind of courage because we're connected to what we really care about. I've heard, uh, I don't know if this is true, I think it's true, but a Tibetan Tibetan phraseology for enlightenment is something like a clearing away and a bringing forth. Lovely, lovely. I think so too. Um, We have about 13 minutes left. I would love to get to listener voicemails. I don't know if we'll get through both of the ones we've got queued up, but let's see what happens. Sure. You want to put some headphones on? Yep. Can you hear me? Very well. Okay. Hi, this is Agatha calling from Norway. I'm a 10% happier insider and have been meditating for the last 10 years. I've read all your books, Dan, and listened to every episode of your podcast, and I'm a huge fan. The first book, however, that put me on this path is uh, A Path with Heart by Jack Confield. Someone lent me this book many years ago, and I consider Jack my first and foremost Dharma teacher, even though I have never met him in person. I'm now extremely happy given a chance to ask him a question. 
So uh, on our mindful path, we are instructed not to identify with our thoughts and stories we tell ourselves since they are not necessarily true, nor with our feelings and emotions since they might stop us from seeing clearly, nor with how we exist in this world, the jobs we have, the people around us, since these are the things we cannot always control or choose, nor with our bodies that will perish. Instead, we sit still and see who we really are. That's at least in short my understanding of the teachings. My question is, how do I know who I really am? What is it that I can identify myself with? Uh, in what can I reflect myself? What are the dimensions or references or media to use to see who I really am when I am no longer my thoughts, my emotions, my surroundings, my body, what's left? Thanks, Dan, and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you for the questions. Just just so you know, Jack, 10% Insider or Podcast Insider is basically there are a group of people who give us feedback on every episode so mm-hmm. that we can do a better job. And they dedicate an enormous amount of time to this. So we gave preferential treatment to the insiders to be able to ask questions to you. Well, I'm glad to hear from an insider. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like now I'm inside too. It's great. Uh, The question is a deep and beautiful one, and it's one that's asked certainly in the practices, whether it's in Zen where one might sit and have the koan or the question, what am I or who am I given by the master? It's there in the Advaita tradition in in India where a great teacher like Ramana Maharshi might say there's only one question you do ask, who am I? Um, and so she's asking this question in some way. She's also asking for my answer, like how do you find this? Um, and the answer really is there in the question because as you ask it, um, what you discover is that there is no solid answer, okay? I'm not that little person in there working the levers like the Wizard of Oz and I'm not those thoughts. I can have thoughts about who I am but those thoughts appear and disappear And it points you instead back to the mysterious quality of awareness itself, which is openness and presence. And when you look for it, you don't find yourself in it, but you do find awareness and you do find the connection that it holds everything. So I would invite her and those who are listening or in some way following along with this not to look for something solid because that would be the mistake but to be in that, what one Zen master called, don't know mind, to say, well, all right, I know I'm not this and this and this, um, and to be open to that space of not knowing where there's still awareness and there's also still a sense of presence and connection and explore this um, in the simplest way, rest in it um, and, and experience that it's possible to rest in awareness itself, in loving awareness, because it contains or is connected with all things. Um, And this is one of the great beauties of meditation. There isn't a cookie-cutter answer, all right, now you have this and you fix it and you find it. Instead, it's an invitation for you in your own way to discover, ah, yes, even as I listen to these words, There's the hearing and the sounds and the ears. And then, oh, 
there's an awareness that's here to know this, not just the thoughts I'm thinking about hearing, but there's actually awareness of these sounds. And now I will be the space, I'll be the vast open space in which the sounds and the experiences arise and pass. I will become the space of awareness itself. There is a meditation that I like to teach, um, and my dear friend and colleague Joseph Goldstein teaches it often as well, called Big Sky Mind or Big Mind, that we have on our websites and so forth. That is another very simple doorway to help people enter into the question that she raised. Remind us exactly where we can find your... If you go on to two things, either... um, to dharmaseed.org, which is a, a website that has thousands of teachings from insight meditation teachers, and look under my name or Joseph Goldstein, you'll find Big Sky or Big Mind practices. Or if you go on my website, jackcornfield.com, um, there will also be, you can look under meditations. Um, and this is an invitation um, to practice together for a time and turn your attention into that mystery. And it turns out to be relatively accessible as you do this meditation, starting with sound and allowing yourself to sense that your mind is not limited to your head, but that it's actually vast like the sky, awareness in which all things are arising and passing. Try it. It's actually pretty cool. Okay, we have just a few minutes, so let's do the second question, and if it's so big that we can't answer it in the time that's allotted, we'll drop it. But uh, let's give it a try. Hi, it's Janice, and I'm a podcast insider. This is a question for Joseph and Jack. I'm wondering about including um, somebody who has died in a in as part of my loving-kindness practice, so... Uh, first of all, do people do that at all? Or how would you go about even phrasing that? And um, how do you include somebody in that? So thank you for everything. Bye. That's a simple question. There is a teaching in some of the instructions for loving-kindness meditation to not use people who've died when that practice is being used for profound concentration because it can be distracting. You might feel grief or you might miss them. But in the way that it's asked and in our normal practice of loving kindness, it's great to bring in people who've died um, and to picture them and to wish wherever you are, because again, we're now opening to mystery, wherever you are, may you be safe, may you be protected, wherever, in whatever form you are. and to turn ourselves to that mystery um, with love is a, a beautiful response. And part of what you learn in meditation is how to wed the individual and the personal with something that's vast and universal. So you remember your Buddha nature, your vastness of awareness, but you also have to remember your zip code and your social security <laughs> number, and you have to drive on the right side of the street and stop at a red light and so forth. And we're creatures of paradox. And the, um, the discerning mind and heart is natural to us. We know how to live. When we get quiet, we live and present. We live in a wiser way. And we live with these two worlds. We live with a world with the great heart of compassion and a sense of vastness. 
that grows as we practice. Our access, our ability to, to shift our identity to that becomes more available. And then we tend the world. And in Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That is, that you quiet the mind and tend the heart and open yourself to something mysterious and vast and filled with compassion and love. And then you get up and you tend the garden of the world. And each of us has particular gifts or areas that we can do. And we're not happy if we don't do some gardening. Um, Our life, part of our happiness comes because we're each born with certain gifts. Um, And to be able to offer some of our gifts to the world is also what makes us happy. So like breathing in and breathing out, there's mindfulness has two dimensions. It has the dimension of presence, loving awareness, and then it has the dimension called mindful response. And both of those are a part of what it means to live wisely. Two things to say to you. Sure. First, your lovely wife, Trudy, who I've met, would you pass her a message? Yes. Please come on my podcast. I will tell her that, and she'll do it, I'm sure. Two, Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's just a a pleasure. And I feel like you have, with your your own personal experience, um, with your combination of skepticism and and sincerity and wit and honesty, self-honesty and so forth, you open the door for people in ways um, that, again, is not some kind of weird, you know, cultural transplant. But you actually invite people to get real um, and honest and then say that this is, not only is this workable, but my guess is that actually you could change it and it would now be like 20% happier, (laughs) maybe 30%. Mark Epstein has uh, argued that my next book should be called 20% Happier. Um, I think I'm going to get out of the math business for now. But thank you so much for those kind words. I really appreciate it very much. Uh, Thank you, everybody. It was so cool to sit with Jack. I mean, the man is, uh, you've heard it, so I don't need to convince you of anything, but he is he is a giant. Thank you to everybody who makes this show possible. Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Ryan Kessler, Mike Dubusky is working the boards as I record. As I close, I want to uh, make an ask, which is, I know we always say, um, uh, rate us, review us, share us on social media. Every podcast host says that. It's really helpful for us because we always want to grow. And I just on the sharing tip, if, um, you know, maybe maybe find an episode or two that is particularly meaningful to you and share that with your friends or a friend. I think that's a great way to, to get the word out there. We care a lot about what we're doing. We think we can be useful to even more people. So if you want to help us with that, I and the rest of the team would be super grateful. Even if you're not up for it, no worries. Either way, I'll see you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.